0: This morning, as we continue to look at the the meaning of the church along with its mission and ministry, we we have covered for you already uh, seven points they are on the screen behind me. We are in point number uh, eight, I believe. Yep, eight. Uh, That the church is the protector and proclaimer of the gospel of God. When you proclaim the gospel biblically, you will protect it boldly. When you proclaim the gospel clearly, you'll protect it courageously. We live in a biblically illiterate time where most people have no understanding as to what the scriptures say or what they are about. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there are many pastors in churches that have led to this biblical illiteracy of people in the pew. A number of years ago, there was a book written called The Purpose Driven Church. After that came quickly The Purpose Driven Life, written by uh, Pastor Rick Warren down at Saddleback Church in Orange County. He has a purpose statement about the purpose-driven church. And in that purpose statement, he, he states these words. Find God, and you will find yourself, and you will find your purpose in life. That's his thesis. The Bible says when you find God, you lose yourself. You don't find yourself, you lose yourself. And he goes on in his book to talk about the fact that it's not about you, but then as he goes through the book, the book is completely all about you and not about the Christ. And so, in his video series that he puts out, that many churches have, have adopted, and some people have even changed their name to the purpose church or something thereof. In the very first of his video series, he prays a prayer, and this is his prayer. He says, Dear God, I want to know your purpose for my life. I don't want to base the rest of my life on wrong things. I want to take the first step in preparing for eternity by getting to know you. Jesus Christ, I don't understand how, but as much as I know how, I want to open up my life to you. Make yourself real to me and use this series in my life to help me know what you made me for. Then he says this. Now, if you've just prayed that prayer for the very first time, I want to congratulate you. You've just become a part of the family of God. Now, what aspect of that prayer tells me about the fact that I'm a sinner? Or what aspect of that prayer tells me about the only way to heaven? What is it about that prayer that talks to me about substitutionary atonement? What is it about that prayer that talks to me about the certainty of judgment and the eternality of life in hell? What is it about that prayer that tells me anything about who Jesus is? And yet he says, congratulations, you're a part of the family of God. So people watching this video series think that now because they said what he just spoke, they are a part of the church. They're a part of the family of God. And the closest he gets in the purpose-driven life to a gospel presentation is on page 58. And on page 58, he says these words, real life begins by committing yourself completely to Jesus Christ. Now, that is true. That's very true. But what he says in defining what it means to commit your life to Jesus Christ is another story. For he goes on and says this, right now, God is inviting you to live for his glory by fulfilling the purpose he made you for. All you need to do is receive and believe. Will you accept God's offer? I invite you to bow your head and quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I receive you. If you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God you are now ready to discover and start living God's purpose for your life. Again, there's nothing in the gospel presentation that it gives on page 58 that a Jehovah's Witness would not accept, or a Mormon would not accept, or a Catholic would not accept, or maybe, maybe even a Muslim would not accept. You see, that's the problem. That's a huge problem. Why? Because it, it convinces people that somehow now they're Christians because they said a certain prayer that never defined the essentials of the gospel nor told you about what it means to truly be saved from your sin and to receive the forgiveness of sins. That, that's a travesty. He goes on to say in his book that he just wants to re engineer the method of the message. He totally obliterates the message in his book. And yet, he has a church filled with thousands of people that come every week thinking that they're saved and on their way to heaven simply because they have found out that God has a purpose for their life and now. They want to be a part of fulfilling that purpose. My friends, the church is the protector and the proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we don't do that, then we will convince a whole slew of people that they're on their way to heaven when in reality they have no idea what it means to be saved from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. We have a huge responsibility. So we started last week by telling you that when you present the gospel, you need to remember certain things. We gave them for, for them to you last week. You must remember the generosity of God, right? For God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We talked talked about John 3.16 and how it's the the most powerful 25 words, yet the most promising 25 words in all of Scripture to show you that our God is a generous, loving, kind, and merciful God. But outside the generosity of God, you got to realize that there's the depravity of man. When you present the gospel, you must show them that man is depraved, that man is a sinner, that man is dead in his sins. And Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You must show them that man is separated from God because the sin nature that he has. He's not a sinner because he sinned. He's a sinner because he's born in sin. Romans five twelve tells us that. And you talk to him about the depravity of man. Then you talk to him about the what the certainty of judgment. Judgment is coming. And if you don't rectify the fact that you're separated from God, you will be lost for all eternity. And therefore, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, that it's a appointed a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. You can put the next screen up if you want to, so they can follow along a little bit better. Thank you. And so you begin to understand that there, there's a certainty of judgment. And because judgment is going to come, you've got to realize that, that man needs to be saved from his sin. And Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10 that if we go on sinning willfully in the full knowledge of who the Son of God is, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a terrifying expectation of judge, judgment. And the Lord would say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that judgment leads to the eternality of hell. And hell is eternal, eternal like heaven is eternal. The word Ionios used 70 times in the New Testament speaks of the eternal nature of God, that he's an eternal king. And not only is he an eternal king because he's the eternal God, but he grants eternal life, all the same word. And that brings eternal judgment to those who do not know him. And so that leads us then to our fifth point, and that is the only hope is the Messiah. The identity of the Messiah That's the the fifth thing you need to make sure you don't forget when presenting the gospel. The, The identity of the Messiah. So important. John 20, 30 and 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him, you might have life in his name, right? The Christmas story, right? Luke chapter two. For unto you this day, has been born in the city of David, a Savior. Who's the Savior? Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. That's who. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The identity of the Messiah is crucial. And that's why we're trying to help you understand that, that this Christmas, with, with the book, The Christ of Christmas, 25 different prophecies, right? Right? that all talk about the coming Messiah, how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And to understand that and to explain that to your children, to give it to your friends that they might understand that you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Turn me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. We began here when we started our series by looking at the very first point that the church is is the plan of the Son of God. But let me take you back to Matthew chapter 16 that you might understand something because you, you know the story. The disciples are up in the northern part of, of uh, Israel uh, at the base of, of Mount Hermon, and, and Christ asked the question, who do men say that I am? Well, what's the popular opinion of the Messiah? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Some Everybody's saying you're great, but nobody's saying you're God. So Christ says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. We recognize you as our Messiah. You are the son. You are equal in nature to the living God. You are God in the flesh. See? The incarnation, the enfleshment of God. We realize who you are. We understand your identity. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Christ would say to Peter, listen, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And, and you can imagine what must have been happening with the disciples. And you, you bring it down to modern day vernacular and Peter saying, yeah, I got it right. And like, high five with John and high five with uh, Bartholomew and high five with Levi. Yeah, I got it right. Yeah, we know you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Christ says these words, very important. He says this in verse number 20. He warned the disciples. they should should tell no one that he was the Messiah. Wait wait a minute. You just said that when we present the gospel, somehow we have to make sure that we don't forget the identity of the Messiah. And Jesus just says to his his men, hey, listen, I'm going to warn you, don't tell anybody that I am the Messiah. Well, why not? If you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in order to be saved, why wouldn't you tell them that then? Because they had a misperception of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah as a military leader, a political leader who would lead them from their enslavement and free them. They didn't see the Messiah as a spiritual deliverer. Because they didn't need that. They were sons of Abraham. They were of the right lineage. They were the chosen people. They didn't need a spiritual deliverance. That's why we looked at Luke chapter 4 last week when Christ said that they were were poor and they were blind and they were imprisoned and they they were oppressed. They didn't see themselves that way spiritually spiritually. Physically, yes, but not spiritually. And therefore, they were unwilling to repent and to turn from their sin. So Christ says to them, listen, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. And then he says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. Why? Because you see, his perception of the Messiah was skewed as well. See? He didn't see his Messiah as having to suffer and die. Although the Old Testament's very, very clear on that. He didn't see it that way. Forbid it, Lord. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You don't have in mind the mission of God. You have in mind the mission of man. Peter, you have a man-centered theology. You don't have a God-centered theology. You're focused in on what's good for you, not what's good by my standards, from my perspective. And then he says this. He says to his disciples in Mark's account, he says he gathers the crowd around and says to everyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father and with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Christ says, listen, not only am I going to suffer and die, But everybody who wishes to be a follower of mine has to realize that they must deny themselves. They must take up their cross daily and follow me. Wow. Christ speaks to the necessity of the cross. So that leads me to our sixth point. That when you present the gospel, you must always remember the centrality of the cross. You can't talk about the identity, of the Messiah, without addressing the centrality of the cross. And when you address the centrality of the cross, you are first of all looking at the necessity of the cross. It is essential that Christ die. He must die. He must sacrifice for the sins of man. And then you go over to Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 9, and it says, verse number 30, From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So he says, not only must you understand the necessity of the cross, you must understand the certainty of the cross. He is to be delivered. This is going to happen. Not only must it happen, it is going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. And then it says this, but they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. Well, why would they be afraid to ask him? Why didn't they understand the statement? Because they didn't want to understand the statement. And they didn't ask him because the Bible tells us why they didn't ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. That was their discussion. We're not going to talk to Christ about death and dying and denying yourself and take up your cross and following him. Why are we going to do that? We're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom because that's what we want to be. We want to be the greatest person around. Then if you go over to Mark chapter 10, verse number 32. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. and Those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So he's already talked to them about the necessity of the cross. He's talked to them about the certainty of the cross. And now he's going to talk to them about the brutality and the cruelty of the cross. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He talks to them about the brutality of the cross. But notice that every time he talks about the cross, it's necessity, it's certainty, or it's brutality, he always talks about what? It's victory. And three days later, He will rise again. You see, they were so taken back by the fact that their Messiah would be killed, they couldn't begin to understand the victory of the cross. And so, you think we're self-centered? Look at these guys. Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Lord, do for us whatever we want. Now, if you read, if you read Mark's account, I mean Matthew's account, you realize that their mother came up. James and John were, were mama's boys. Okay? I know they're called the Sons of Thunder, but really they're mama's boys. And their mom came up. And she wanted Jesus to do whatever she wanted him to do because she asked this question. Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. That's the question that the mother asked. I want my boys to have a special place in glory. I want one on your right hand and one on your left hand. After all, they're the sons of thunder. These are great young men. Lord, grant me this request. Again, he just talks about the brutality and the cruelty of his death, and all they can think about is glory. All they can think about is greatness. All they can think about is themselves. They miss the point of the cross. The cross is central to the mission of the Messiah. Paul would say, First Corinthians 2, verse number two, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, before that, verse 23 we preach Christ crucified. The cross is central to the mission and message of the Christ. If the cross is not central to your mission and your ministry and your message, You have another Christ than the Christ of the Scriptures. We're about to partake of the Lord's table. It is the only, only thing that Jesus memorialized during his ministry. He never memorialized a miracle, he never memorialized even one of his messages although they're there in the Scriptures. But what he did memorialize was the Lord's table. This you do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Never forget this. Whatever you do. He transformed the last Passover into the first Lord's Supper. And from that day forward, Christians have been celebrating the Lord's table. Why? Because it's a memorial. Why why did he memorialize this table? Not specifically this table, but the Lord's table. Why why did he memorialize it? Ah, that's a great question. Did you ask that question? I did. It's because he has a memorial name. And if he has a memorial name, he's going to memorialize that which accentuates his name. And you know what that memorial name is. Because way back in the book of Exodus, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? Exodus chapter 3. And God said, you tell them, I am sent you. And that phrase, I am, making up four Hebrew consonants, give us the name of God. And Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 8, verse number 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Why? Because I am is the memorial name. Listen to what he says. He says, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. God says, I have a memorial name. And that memorial name is the fact that I am a savior, redeemer, rescuer, deliverer. That's who I am. That's what I do, and nobody else can do what I do. And so from generation to generation, there's a name that you must remember. It's my memorial name. It's to be remembered from generation to generation. You pass it down to your children. They might pass it down to their children. Why? Because they need to know who I am. I am their savior. I am their redeemer. I am their rescuer. I am their deliverer. This is his memorial name. And so... On the eve of the crucifixion, Christ memorializes the Lord's table because it symbolizes his deliverance. He came to die. That was his mission in life. He came to die. The subsequent resurrection would prove life over death. That's what he came to do. So that's why he memorialized the Lord's table. You cannot present the gospel without emphasizing the centrality of the cross. And you can't present the gospel without emphasizing the identity of the Messiah who hung on the cross because everything pointed to the Messiah's coming, living, dying, and rising again. So important to understand this but so often we miss it. So we need to understand that when presenting the gospel, we need to remember the generosity of God. What a great God who rules the world. But the reason man doesn't come to him, John 3, is because man loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. So you have to talk about the depravity of man. With that comes the certainty of judgment and the eternality of life with God, or life without God. The only hope, the Messiah. So you must address the identity of the Messiah. Who is he? How do we know who he is? Did he come? If he's so, when did he come? And what did he do? That emphasizes the centrality of the cross. And next week, we'll talk to you About the reality of the resurrection, the primacy of faith, the necessity of repentance, because all that is crucial when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today. The opportunity you give us to spend this brief moment in your word, it is so important, Lord, that the gospel is proclaimed accurately proclaimed biblically you are the greatest evangelist who ever lived you taught us what to say we don't need to change the words we don't need to dumb down the words we don't need to dilute the words we just need to give people the truth of the scriptures because lord you're in charge of all things. So we ask as we come together to celebrate the memorial name of God, the Lord, you go before us that we might honor you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.